0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editors Brenda Sandberg and Sue Sutter, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is July 2nd, 2021, and we have a packed virtual room for this week's show. They're all going to help us unpack the FDA news that surfaced, even though it's the week before the U.S. Independence Day celebration. First up is the controversial Alzheimer's drug aduhelm. This week, the FDA revealed that revealed some more of its thinking as it reviewed the application, including how it thought about the largely negative advisory committee comments. Brenda, you wrote the story. What did we learn from these new review documents?
1: Well, FDA released 600, over 600 pages of documents. There were medical review, the statistical review, and the clinical, uh, clinical pharmacology review. And the medical review was really striking at that towards the end, they had a a lengthy section, a section responding to advise, advisory committee criticisms of, uh, of, of their analysis and their approval. And what struck me was, um, during the advisory committee meeting, there were members that were very vocal and they kind of had a list of everything that FDA got wrong and its analysis. And when I was reading the document, it struck me, well, oh, FDA has its own list of what the advisory committee got wrong. and um, and a couple of those things that really stood out was that they said that, that um, they didn't fully explore the patient perspective and what patients um, and caregivers and advocates spoke at the advisory committee meeting. They really talked about how, how 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 much they wanted this drug. I mean, even even if there was a chance that it would slow down cognitive decline, and um, they also. Um, said they um they had criticisms of their following the statistical reviewers who found there wasn't substantial evidence to support approval and then another thing is and this was really surprising and it was throughout the document they talked about um uh two drugs two other drugs investigation uh eli Lilly's. um I'm um, being this right, Mab don- and um, Biogen's other drug and investigational drug um, band 2401, which is Lecanemab, And um, the medical reviewer said, re- particularly responded to uh, a commentary that three of the panel members um, issued in, in uh, JAMA um, a few months ago. And the the reviewer said, oh, there's been all these studies, and the, the theory that am amylo- affecting amyloid plaque would would have an effect on, on a cognitive ability wasn't shown. But the medical reviewer said, well, actually, there's these two drugs, and it's they've shown a similar, um, you know, similar to at educam in in terms of um, um, the magnitude of effect on um, the, the clinical the, on the clinical endpoints so those were the 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 things that really struck me about the medical review and then um in the clinical ph- pharmacology review uh, that 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 review also looked at past they had a whole chart of seven um investigational drugs and four of them had failed because um of, on futility or on com or primary endpoints and so that was really interesting to see there that, that that reminder of all the drugs that had failed and and they focused on the the three that that um, that they feel um, are look promising including at at you and then just on the statistical review um, th- they found no substantial evidence um, that, that the studies didn't show substantial evidence and there was also the, this quote from the, um, Tristan Macy, the, the the main reviewer, and he said, if one takes two studies and takes the best and pretend like and pretend like it's the only study, one's estimate is is most likely biased and misleading. And um, the panel, one of the panel members had quoted Massey during the advisory committee meeting, um, and it's just a you know a striking quote. So that's kind of my summation of the things that struck me.
0: Yeah, I guess I'm not surprised that the uh the clinical and the statistical reviewers didn't uh, didn't quite agree on on this one just like they they in the past they we've seen battles between those two before. Um Sue, you also have covered the Aduhelm Saga closely. Was there anything else in there that really stuck out to you?
2: Sure, like Brenda, I also read through um the set of documents that FDA released this week. The the medical review, I was very struck by it, it not only did it seem very defensive, but also sort of not very respectful of the advisory committee. I mean, these are, you know, external experts recruited by FDA to come and give up their time and help advise the agency on on very thorny questions as it tries to make a regulatory decision. And I just wondered if, you know, sort of this might make others who could be considered for an advisory committee meeting Maybe less interested in participating. Um, I just wondered if members of the, of this committee took offense at, at some of the language used in the um, medical review. Then the other thing that has struck me, and I, you know, I remain fascinated by this whole confirmatory trial that BioGen is supposed to do. To date of the of the documents that FDA has released from the review, there has been no discussion of. Really, details of what that confirmatory trial should look like, or whether there were any concerns among agency staff about feasibility of conducting that study. And I find that very interesting, based upon all of the other review documents I've read for accelerated approval drugs over the years, where feasibility is almost always taken into consideration.
0: Yeah, that's that's very interesting. I, I guess uh, I'm uh, I'm i'm curious about your you know the the your the idea that, that this was very defensive i mean it is and, and kind of didn't really you know was kind of dismissive i guess i don't know if that's the right word or not of the the advisory committee's comments i mean it, you've read more of these review documents than i have i mean is is that i mean do they usually do that i mean we've seen i mean we've all sat through committee meetings where it felt like the committee just either didn't understand what was going on or didn't you know just kind of got off on a tangent and kind of missed missed the point of everything but i mean are, will the has the agency ever been kind of dismissive like this in in their internal documents before
2: the tone of it struck me such that i don't ever remember it being sort of this dismissive i mean they will respond to, to points raised but at an advisory committee meeting Um, in the course of their review documents, but also keep in mind, this is probably one of the rare cases where they approved a drug over the, you know, despite the overwhelming negative review by an advisory committee, so maybe they felt obligated to address point by point um, the advisory committee members' criticisms, but as you say, I think the word dismissive um, is a very good descriptor of, of the medical reviews um, take on the advisory committee's recommendations.
3: There were some pretty funny um, comments, I think, in um, Brenda's story or that came from the documents where, I mean, they talked about how they thought the advisory committee would have gone differently if it was in person. And I, I mean, we certainly covered some of the problems FDA has had with these virtual meetings in terms of the Technical issues, but they seem to think like the sponsors or the FDA would have been better able to answer their questions virtually. And they seem to act like the timing of this meeting was at a point where FDA was still getting used to doing these virtual meetings because of the pandemic. Things that just um, don't quite add up. Right by the November, they had had lots of practice with virtual meetings, um, and even their criticisms of that process. That doesn't seem to be what we've observed as the things that have gone wrong in the virtual meeting world. It just doesn't seem like an in-person meeting would have actually made the difference FDA was trying to suggest there and seemed like they were trying to grasp at straws in some of their criticism. I I would agree with uh,
2: you, Sarah, um, about that. It certainly was not one of the first advisory committee meetings to be held virtually as was said in the medical review it may have been the first for that review division or the office of neuroscience I'm not sure but there has certainly been plenty of experience leading up to that time.
1: Also at the meeting there was several members they were very extremely vocal about um you know, criticizing FDA for its close alignment with with Biogen and you know working so that uh, they could revive the studies and and have one study accepted. and they they really then that doesn't matter whether they were in person or not. They I mean, they looked at the briefing document and they were outraged by by the analysis,
4: yeah, it really does feel like uh, Fda was maybe maybe returning the favor there in terms of sort of the uh... The pointed remarks that the uh, advisory committee offered uh, uh, during its uh, um, evaluation of uh, uh, of the drug, and then for sort kind of FDA uh, um, in the medical reviews, sort were kind of offered some uh, pointed remarks about the advisory committee uh, right back. I mean, the, as as you noted, sort of after the advisory committee, uh, the agency sort of kind of wasn't in, in a tough spot there because there there wasn't much they could uh, um, hang a uh, pro approval uh, argument on, just given the. Uh, the near unanimity unanimity of the uh, of the advisory committee uh, um, remarks. So uh, um, you know, if you look at a uh, you know a court ruling, there's obviously are kind of you know arguments on either side, and they, the judge uh, just ends up picking uh, um, what they like in terms of the uh, the arguments that agree with the decision they came uh, they came up with, and they're kind of uh, you know able to use the counterpoints to uh, to argue against uh, um, the uh, the the position that they uh, ended up ruling against. But uh, here, there wasn't anything that the, you know FDA could uh, describe or, uh, or or note that was sort of in the, in favor of the position that they uh, ended up uh, um, going with, especially because they um, at the advisory committee didn't even talk about accelerated uh, um, approval and uh, you know all this uh, um, attempt to uh, use the other investigational uh, drugs as some sort of kind of uh, you know pseudo validation of the uh, um, the amyloid uh, um, uh, plaque as a biomarker It was just sort of uh, um, really strange in my, uh, um, in my opinion, in terms of sort of kind of, uh, you know, relying on other, uh, um, others, other, other uh, products for, uh, for efficacy information. And, uh, um, it's just, uh, um, you know, I think a, uh, um, you know, uh, in some ways sort of a function of human nature, The uh, um, the FDA seems like they've decided they wanted to approve the drug and then they, uh, they had to, uh, rationalize it to themselves and, uh, and others through, uh, through formal memos because that's the process. And we end up with this sort of kind of this sort of kind of, uh, um, you know, uh, um, odd uh, odd set of documents that sort of, kind of doesn't uh, satisfy from an intellectual uh, uh, perspective, perhaps, but it does sort of, kind of get the uh, um, the the job done in terms checking that box and uh, um, you know moving on with the process. Yeah,
0: that's something I was going to ask about, Matt. You you mentioned the you know looking at the the previously failed drugs and Brenda. You mentioned this too that it was you know that it was in the review documents that they listed like you know we had all these failures. I mean. It, is that? I, I don't know if that's common or if that was kind of a, uh, an in, uh, you know, an unu- unusual way to kind of talk about, you know, we're approving, you know, you know, and put that in the context of an approval of another, or you know, I, I mean, it's not a competing drug because they all failed, but you know, you, you don't, you don't want to give the impression I would think that you're saying we had these seven failures, so we're going to approve this one. You know, I mean, that's not I'm sure that's not what they were thinking, but it you could maybe get that impression if you read it wrong. I don't
4: know. Well, we've certainly seen, you know, uh, FDA uh, look at uh, data from other parts in the class, often in the context of kind of asking a particular sponsor for more data. You know, you see sort of kind of safety effects and sort of kind of, uh, you know, folks have to go back and do their own uh, studies because some uh, some drug t- showed a signal uh, on, even if it wasn't the sponsor's uh, drug, but uh, what what I thought was uh, a little unusual was this kind of this idea that you could sort of rely on the uh, efficacy, if you want to call it that, uh, data from through sort of some of these trials as uh, um, you know evidence that this uh, um, that the uh, you know aducanumab would uh, um, would work. That's uh, um, that seems to kind of an unusual step for for FDA.
1: Especially since the two drugs they mentioned, they're they're in, they're in clinical trials. I mean, they they haven't gone before the agency yet. They don't have any applications pending, so and they haven't been approved. So it was it was seemed very uh, unusual that FDA would be t- talking about that data as support of of uh, you know coming to the conclusions they did on aducanumab. Interesting.
2: And if, well, if I, I could just go back to one point on the on the virtual format too. Um, I mean, FDA was largely responsible for how that meeting presentation went, because they had the sponsor and the agency reviewers pre-record their full presentations, and then summary presentations were given at the actual meeting. And FDA's Office of Neuroscience Director, Billy Dunn, is the only person from FDA who spoke during the agency summary presentation. And he certainly did not represent the dissenting views of the statistical team. And it was only when panelists specifically asked statistical questions of the statistical (laughs) viewers that those folks got to speak. So, you know, if there's complaints about the virtual format, I think some of that has to fall on FDA because they're the ones who decide it. Who made the presentations and to go with this pre-recorded route? Not all advisory committees have done that.
0: Um, well, one thing I wanted I wanted to get to before we move on is you know there there are some additional steps here. You know so what are we looking for next in terms of this drug as it, you know they get ready to roll it out or if it as it becomes available?
3: The big thing is going to be um, what does Medicare do right? How do they cover this? Um, do they cover it for as broad a population as FDA labeled it for, um, do they find some way to restrict the population? Um, and it's not even just this drug, they probably have to cover certain scans and things differently for people to end up probably using the drug in the real world to some degree. And then also, do they have any leverage in any way to get the price down if they don't somehow restrict the population to control pricing. I mean, it's it's pretty, um, if the pricing doesn't budge, I mean, even if they gave it to something like 10% of the eligible patients, you have more money than Part B normally spends on drugs in an entire year. So this is going to be a huge issue um, for Medicare if they just kind of go with this broad label FDA gave it, which you know is one of the sort of very surprising things because um, you know, <laughs> um, they they basically did a broader label than um, what they studied in the actual clinical trials, which seems pretty unusual, particularly when you have a um, such a controversial c- case, I think, mm-hmm. um, to actually go broader.
4: Yes, yeah, sir. That's a it's a really interesting point. I mean, it seems like uh, it was broader even than uh, Biogen was expecting. Uh, you know, they they priced it at sort of kind of what, uh, you know, we would normally look at it as like a, uh, you know, a sort of a specialty tier for sort kind of a more uh, infrequently used uh, um, drug uh, um, uh, kind of benchmark. And uh, now uh, they've come out and said like, oh, well, if it ends up being used a lot in Medicare, we'll sort of uh, think about some volume discounts and uh, and stuff like that. So it's for kind of – uh, it almost for kind of uh, – um, seems better than they were hoping in terms of the breadth of the potential population and uh, for what they were planning at the launch.
3: Yeah, I'd have to imagine there are some people at CMS that are fairly angry with FDA at this (laughs) moment for just putting them really in the hot seat. I mean, I can't imagine whatever CMS does, there's going to be a political fallout now on their end because there's I just don't see any way they're going to make everybody happy <laughs> whatever <laughs> decision they do here Um and you know some of that really c- comes down to position FDA I think put them in
0: <laughs> and it's really going to be mostly on Medicare right I mean because of this they're you know they're their demographic they're they're hitting most of the Alzheimer's patients rather than private insurance so Next up is an interview that Sarah did with former FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn. He just took a new job in the venture capital industry, but he also discussed his time at the agency, right, Sarah?
3: Yeah, so um, we sort of talked about his high and low points in terms of what he was the best part, worst part of being FDA commissioner. And he he said that the worst part was sort of the dealing with the political um side of working in the government. And um, I thought that was pretty interesting because um, when he was a FDA commissioner and, um, you know, obviously a lot of it was during COVID and there was lots of concern that the Trump administration was politically influencing FDA in a way that was inappropriate. And he often stood up and said, you know, no, 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 we're calling the balls and strikes. Our career scientists are doing the work. And this wasn't the first time he sort of, I think, backpedaled a little bit on that um, since he left and been, you know, a little bit more transparent and saying that, you know, there was political pressure on the FDA and that did make their job um, a bit harder. And he's joined, you know, the Pretty much all the other former FDA commissioners alive today and sort of saying there needs to be some reconsideration of, you know, the structure of FDA, you know, perhaps taking it out of HHS and, um, you know, structuring the leadership in a way that it's less tied to like the current president in power and kind of insulating it was trying to influence, insulate it from some of that political influence in a, in a different way. So that was pretty, um, fascinating. Did,
0: did you get the sense that he was relatively pleased with his tenure?
3: Um, yeah, I mean, I think so. I think, I, I mean, I certainly don't think he came into the FDA job <laughs> thinking, you know, it was going to be defined by a pandemic, just like <laughs> nobody else <laughs> expected that. Um, I mean, he didn't, um, necessarily bring up any big regrets. I think he was pleased to ke- have the opportunity to serve, um, you know, the American public and take that role.
4: So, Sarah, in terms of his uh, um, his next act, I think you uh, uh, teased out some interesting uh, um, uh, issues there too, that sort of, that he's going to be looking at this, uh, you know, uh, preventative approach to uh, um, uh, to therapeutics uh, um, to an extent and sort of kind of, uh, um, you know, it's obviously sort of, kind of a, uh, um, a long-running cri- general critique of the U.S. healthcare system that uh, you know we don't uh, do enough, as sort we of kind of to uh, maintain health as opposed to sort of kind of uh, you know uh, the heroic efforts to restore health once uh, um, someone becomes uh, sick. And uh, um, you know, he seemed to have some uh, thoughts on sort of, kind of how the uh, um, you know the approval standards would, would sort of work for those uh, those drugs and perhaps how they should work.
3: Yeah. So he um, his particular position at. Um, flagship pioneering is going to be focused on two areas. One is sort of health security. So you can think about like, you know, pandemic preparedness, maybe, you know, how climate change might, cre- you know, create needs for new drugs or, you know, perhaps human-made um, like defense type um, medicines needed to deal with bio-warfare or something like that. But the other area is um, what he calls per- preemptive medicine. So trying to think about like, can we intervene in a disease much earlier than we currently are? Can we even identify people that don't yet have the disease, but are pretty likely to develop it? So perhaps, you know, like looking at someone who's been flagged as like pre-diabetic and thinking of like, is there a medicine you could treat them with now that would prevent them from developing full-blown diabetes? Um, the issue there of course is that, um, you know, much like vaccines, um, you know, tr- giving somebody a drug that will inevitably have some degree of side effects becomes a much harder trade-off um, when you don't even know if the person's going to necessarily develop the full-blown course of disease in their natural, <laughs> you know. Um, it, you know, so you know, we talked a little bit about whether FDA would be, you know ready to kind of handle those types of products and make those calculations. And he seemed to feel like, you know, it would be something FDA would have to put a little bit of thought to, um, you know, and work with the sponsors, but he was optimistic they could do that. The other thing I think he, he sort of pointed out was like some of the onus would be on, you know, the drug developers or companies to basically, um, figure out, um, if they can very, um, clearly tease out, you know, this class of people or these biomarkers about these people are, you know, they are, you know, X really do have like this likelihood of progressing. And this is like, you know, very likely develop the disease in a severe way. You know, if you can really tease out those sorts of populations, it might become a different, um, calculus as well. But, I mean, it seems like definitely um, if these types of drugs come available in the next few years it would be very interesting to see how FDA thinks about it.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It, it, I, I also liked how he, he wasn't ready to say that he was going to be more successful than his predecessor, Scott Gottlieb, who, you know, is, you know, by most accounts pretty, has been pretty successful in his post-FDA life. Um, it's also interesting that this is kind of turning into—I don't know if it, it too is a trend—but it, it, this is, VC is kind of turning into a another landing spot here for for um, you know for FD, FDA FDA commissioners. I mean, now that we, we've got two of those, and we hadn't really seen that before, I guess, at least in recent memory. Uh, Peggy Hamburg went into kind of the policy space. Robert Califf went into—he went to Google, but he was, I think he's doing like healthcare issues or things like that. So, it'd be interesting to see if this becomes kind of like an ongoing. You know, get a real a spot for um you know for future commissioners.
3: Yeah, I guess the one thing <laughs> with Gottlieb is he he did venture capital pre FDA. Mm-hmm. Um, and he you know he's always been very um focused on economics and um you know he also had a stint at Medicare. Um, so I feel like Gottlieb always had that sort of dual those dual interests of not just the FDA regulatory side of drug development, but kind of thinking about, um, payment issues and economics in a different way. Um, but it is interesting that Han will follow in his footsteps. I asked him a little bit, and this didn't really make it into the story, I don't think, um, about, you know, what flagship was kind of looking for when they hired him and what was the... What was the attractiveness of his FDA experience versus, um, you know, some of his other experience because, um, you know, one of the recent, a recent person from NCATS went there. They've taken a few other government folks too, and Khan seemed to think it was, it wasn't yes obviously they're interested in his fda experience but he felt like it was pretty much a a combination of the fda experience the time at md anderson and so forth and it was a package it wasn't that they were solely attracted to him because of his time at um fda um and obviously of course um we did talk a little bit about you know han will have certain restrictions on what he can and cannot do in terms of interacting with the government going forward but
0: Still very Yeah, still very interesting and be, you know, fun to watch going forward as we, uh, you know, as he as his career kind of grows, um, you know, over there. Finally, today, we return to a topic that CEDAR director Patrizia Cavazzoni raised a few weeks ago, advisory committee reform. As local (laughs) listeners will remember, Cavazzoni famously said that she wanted to get the emotional overtone out of the committee meetings. This week, we ran a three part series considering potential changes. One looks at the open public hearing, such as offering, maybe having a a more detailed look at the backgrounds of who is speaking. Uh, Another story looked at, wondered whether we should take a stab at adjusting conflict of interest rules again for the committee members, so you could get more pertinent expertise uh, on the committees themselves. And finally, uh, one idea was a better wording of the questions that the committees are asked by the agency so they could solicit some better input. So we've all been to many adcoms over the years. Where do you got? Where do you all fall on the on these ideas? I mean, is there one that could easily be done? Is there one that should be done first over all the others? Is there something completely different that we need to do? You know, other than these three ideas.
3: So the I am um, also listened to that bio interview, and the most striking part of it to me was the comment about you know emotion. Because this, he, so that interview was recorded pre the adjudication map decision, but it was aired afterwards. Um, and it just seemed a bit ironic that she was making this plea to get emotion out of it because I think probably, I assume you guys would probably agree with me that the um, the most like emotional part of FDA advisory committees usually is the public public. Um, testimony or the open hearing, um, particularly when you get patients or patient caregivers up um, to give testimony. And that was the part of the advisory committee that FDA seemed to, you know, uh, you know, as Brenda, I think, and Sue mentioned, they felt like the committee didn't listen to those people and their feelings. Um that was the part of that committee that really gave FDA some support. And people seemed to feel like FDA was making more of a non-science based decision um, with educanumab. So I just found it kind of interesting that sh- they were pushing for that when in this particularly public case, that was the one part of the hearing that seemed to go in FDA's favor.
0: Yeah, that's, it, it, it's interesting because you you usually you see, occasionally you'll see, you know, committee members make Statements later on saying, you know, oh, the the you know the the patient testimony during the open public hearing was really, you know, was really compelling or something like that. I mean, I I can't count the number of times I've heard that or people or seen people admit that, you know, like I wasn't sure about this, but the patients, you know, you know, pushed me over to you know one way or the other. It's a it that it's an it's an interesting you know an interesting dynamic to think about that that would be either lessened or you know. Gone from a, me- a meeting like that.
2: Um, I was struck by the the idea of um, better wording of the questions because that is always an issue at advisory <laughs> meetings. And this idea that you know some committees are presented with one and only one question, and that's the voting question on the risk benefit. And some are presented with six or eight questions. You know, maybe four discussion questions and four voting questions and i have to say that you know you certainly see the committee lose steam as the more and more questions they get especially in the virtual setting because no, there nobody's looking at their face asking <laughs> for, you know, what, well, how do you feel about this? You can't, you know, with the uh, CEDAR meetings, the, the, they've not yeah, been
0: on and camera. And you also run into, you know, we've re- seen them run into problems where they don't understand the way a question's worded. And so there's like a 10 minute discussion on, you know, how do we consider this? What should we do about that? What do we do if we think this? And, you know, and, and I I, I want to say that they've, The FDA officials have said in the past they have to write the questions way in advance. So they don't necessarily they can't really take into kind of consideration how the discussion during the day actually goes. So that kind of can mess around with how the questions are received or framed or thought about. But, yeah, it's still a that you you could see, you know, uh, uh, you know, at least internally, the FDA thinking about changing how the questions you know maybe should be worded or how, how they put them together maybe even putting a limit on the number that they could have that would be you know if you said okay no more than four
4: yeah if you look at uh, you know the edge helm uh, um committee uh uh meeting and through kind of what uh, um fda is hoping to get out of it i mean i know this kind of runs counters for kind of perhaps the uh energy level and uh, uh clarity that uh, um uh, sue was talking about but sort kind of if you ask uh you know, a bunch of different questions or the, there are or similar questions, uh, um, you know, or even the same question in, in, in different ways, you will get up and get with different answers. And that's where it can, can, can be uh, more elucidating than just sort of the this, this simple up or down uh, vote of FDA looking for some, for more, more subtle opinion. Uh,
1: yeah, and on the there the questions, there was not a question that said, well, will you, would you vote to recommend approval or not? It was like more like, Oh, is this one study that yeah you know and uh, does this show efficacy and what about the dosing study can you use that as to support so um, you know when I wrote up what exactly did the advisory committee vote on I had to go back and 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 look carefully at the question and, and just <laughs> because it wasn't like an up or down on on, on approval
0: sorry go
3: ahead sir I was going to say then there's always those instances and um, Kate wrote a bit about this in her series where FDA asks like a sequential questions like, is the safety satisfactory? Is the advocacy satisfactory? And then there is an up or down approval. And somehow people seem to make contradictory votes. And that raises questions <laughs> about, you know, do the advisory committee members understand what they're voting on? <laughs> um, how is FDA supposed to interpret that? Um, you know, that came up at a, a recent advisory committee, which he lays out, um, in the story, and I actually covered it. And I mean, one of the members' explanations for her contradictory vote seemed very um, confusing. She was saying, well, it was sort of a hypothetical situation. She was thinking more of a hypothetical situation in the, fi- <laughs> the final thing. And um, there, there are times when I definitely think FDA writes poorly, um, poorly written questions that lead to confusion. And then there are times when it just seems like if they could just... Ex- Um, explain better, um, or you would, I mean, you would think a lot of the advisory committee members would sort of understand how some of this works in terms of the regulatory standard and what it means if you say the safety isn't satisfactory in terms of overall risk benefit. Um, But yeah, maybe there needs to be a bit more education of some of the panelists, too, about kind of the technicalities that, you know, FDA is so familiar with, and we're certainly familiar with having covered, covered this process.
0: And since we've talked about two of the three ideas, I'll, I'll just go. I'll just uh, mention the third one too. I mean, uh, conflict of interest adjustments. Uh, I, I mean, that that could be useful. Uh, I'm not. I'm not going to pretend to be a lawyer and understand what tinkering needs to be done, but um, I know this has been a complaint pretty much since I've been with the pink sheet about you know how the the especially in the rare disease community, how the committees can get the the few experts on some of these rare diseases on the committee because they're, they're, because they're one of only, you know, a handful of people in the world that know anything about the disease. They're the ones that are running all the trials on it. So, and that of course makes them ineligible under the rules. So they, it, this complaint led to the loosening of the rules in the, the 2012 PADUFA reauthorization Apparently, they need to, you know, the, you know, the one idea is to look at it again uh, because it's still taking a make, taking a lot of potential people with some interesting, you know, ideas for these committees off off the table. Uh, but yeah, you know, again, I, yeah, how you, how how you, you know, tinker with it to make it so you're not putting the investigators for the drugs that are being considered on the committee. I, I really don't know
3: yeah i mean just to sort of play devil's advocate or whatever or maybe the opposite i'm not sure um i think he's a little off but i mean i so you know sue Brendan, and i covered the um recent big odak accelerated approval meeting and i looked at um the many conflict of interest waivers they granted there and i mean what that seems to show you is it's not that hard to get for them to waive you know to issue waivers when they need to so i guess i'm curious what other authority they really think they need. Because, you know, certainly for that meeting, they were able to get a lot of people with, that would normally seem to be disqualified, able to sit on the meetings anyway. And the, I mean, even the documentation they put up around it, I mean, they don't have to go to a lot of effort to really justify issuing those waivers. I mean, when I read them, you know, it's, it's not really clear that they, you know, they don't have to prove they really thoroughly exhausted a search for unconflicted experts. Um, so, you know, I was a bit surprised to see her say that because it seems like the current process gives them a lot of flexibility. I mean, one thing even have been talking to people about, um, the process and FDA asking them some questions about the waivers for those stories was that FDA really is only looking at people's conflicts over like a one year timeframe. So, you could have spent you know decades you know essentially with conflicts that might you might people might think would um, disqualify you from serving, but if in the past year you were sort of clean, if you will, you can serve. so I don't know I'd be interested to see where they go with this. It just seems like they're actually pretty the changes that have been made in the past few years to make it easier um seem to give FDA a lot of flexibility to get who they think they need on these panels.
0: Yeah, and it could be a simple thing where they, you know, they can't find people who are, who want to do it, which is, I've heard that is is a problem, you know, just that there, at least, a, you know, a few years ago, the, the, you know, there was, I heard one comment where it was like, everyone wants to be on NIH advisory committees because of the status of NIH and the kind of the allure of the, of the NIH, but FDA advisory committees were kind of, you know, didn't really sit that high in the in the pecking order, and they needed to kind of you know the 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 thinking was we need to change that. So it, you know, it, it could be a, a simple fact of we need to you know do a better job of kind of convincing people to serve and 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 uh, you know how important it is. But yeah, I, it, it that's an it, it's an interesting problem. It's all, this has always been a, an interesting problem, and I don't know if they'll ever be able to fix it. it
2: goes back to the uh, aducanumab advisory committee and, you know, sort of FDA's <laughs> outright rejection of the advisor's views on that, you know, is that going to encourage other people to serve on FDA advisory committees? I don't know.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Well, that's all for this week. For
2: more, check out our website at
0: www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Brenda Sandberg, Sue Sutter, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time.